Yes, hello. Mr. Joe Kent, it's an honor to have you on the line. Thank you so much for having me on. No, thanks for joining me. I'm really delighted to be speaking with you and that you're one of the first guests on the podcast. And I've been following you for a while on social media, and I think that what you're doing is terrific. So I wanted to chat about you and your race and your views on what's going on in America at the moment. Absolutely. I'm excited for the conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks. I mean, you're holding the torch of the America First movement and are clearly a very promising candidate in the state of Washington, the third district, I believe, if you can tell us a bit about your race. And um, well, first of all, I, I have to tell you, I first found out about you on Twitter via Mike Cernovich's tweet with your video. And it was incredibly moving, uh, also having read your piece that you wrote for NBC News, which I'd love to talk about as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we can start with the with the race. Um, so I'm running in Washington State's 3rd Congressional District. And for people who aren't familiar, we're right uh, on the southern Washington border, just to the north of Portland, Oregon, which has unfortunately gotten rather famous in the last you know year and a half or so because of all the riots and lawlessness that's uh, spawned from Portland. Um, but the Washington's district, Washington District Three, is actually a very uh, conservative and kind of a more traditional, classic America. Really, we have a uh, one major urban hub, which really isn't even that big of a city. It's more of a glorified suburb of of Portland, Oregon. But the rest of the district is very much timber country, very much agricultural country. Uh, we have a really booming fishing industry as well. So we're kind of sandwiched right between Portland and Seattle. So. We've struggled to keep our uh, conservative values, and for about the last decade or so, we've had Representative Jamie Herrera Butler uh, as our representative, and she essentially has done what most of the classic Republicans do. They uh, they talk a really good game, and then when they get into office, they maybe support some tax cuts here and there, but they've really let the, the far left just march in uncontested. That all came to light with the impeachment of President Trump. She was one of the, the um, impeachment voters, but way before that, we knew that she was a bad Republican. She voted to uh, rescind the construction of the border wall. She voted. Uh, she didn't say anything as Antifa marched into our district from Portland, um, but she did cross aisles with the Democrats to vote to uh, prevent President Trump from deploying troops to actually quell the violence. She recently passed a bunch of different amnesty bills for illegal aliens. So. She, She's just been on key issue after key issue. She has just failed the uh, the people of this district. And so people after 2020 and seeing everything that happened, people are really ready for a change. There's a huge grassroots mobilization going on. So She sounds like a bona fide rhino. She is, yeah. If you, if you need an example, it's, it's definitely her. She's really good at uh, laying low under the radar. Uh, because, Port because our district sandwiched between Portland and Seattle, her just having an R by her name really got her this far. She's the absolute opposite of what you stand for, and the campaign you're running so far is incredibly impressive, and you've got the support of the America First crowd because this is clearly what you want for your country, and, and your story is incredibly moving, uh, first of all. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about your motivations as to why you're running I, uh, I never intended to uh, to go into politics. So really, uh, Jimmy Herrera Butler voting for the impeachment of Trump um, is really what got me into this because I, I saw it as a moment of, hey, you can either sit here and, and complain about it or you can go do something. So I, I spent a little over uh, 20 years in the military. I was in uh, special operations for, for all of it. Went in just before 9-11, then 9-11 happened, and that kind of set the trajectory of the rest of 
uh, really my adult life uh, up to this point was deploying to combat. Um, and so, you know, I, I like to say that my uh, service in the military, I got to see the best and the worst of this country. So the best is seeing and, and leading and serving with young men and young women who just believe in America and they're willing to go fight and die for it. So just being part of that core group that stepped forward to go fight after 9-11, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of. But seeing the worst of what our government has to offer, uh, I, I believe that we went to war after 9-11 for all the right reasons. We had to go take out al-Qaeda. We had to go take out the members of the Taliban that harbored al-Qaeda. But right after that, we, we we changed course without really the consent of the American people. Uh, George Bush pretty much said that after the key al-Qaeda leaders uh, escaped into Pakistan, that we were going to switch shift focus and do nation building. And then right after that, we, we got in the Iraq war, which is basically based off lies. And I spent a lot of time in Iraq, and as far as I'm concerned, we just made mistake after mistake there and, and really destabilized the entire region. So seeing that, that the military industrial complex and the political class was willing to do this, it really opened my eyes up. I was pretty jaded on politicians. I became a pretty early supporter of President Trump, and, and really it was very simple because President Trump came in and he was willing to call a spade a spade. He, he didn't just complain about the Democrats. He went after the Republican foreign policy establishment. He went after the Bushes, and that, that won him over to me. And then when he became president, he gave us the authorities to go out and take out ISIS like we had to do. Um, and to be tough on Iran, but he tried to get us out of out of the wars, and that's kind of what what led me to this point, really, because as Trump tried to get our troops out of Syria, uh, my wife, who was also in special operations, was deployed to Syria, fighting the remnants of the caliphate in Syria. She deployed about a month before Trump tried to pull our troops out. So um, my wife would still be alive had. President Trump's orders not been thwarted by essentially the deep state. Um, Secretary of Defense Mattis, a bunch of other unelected bureaucrats turned against Trump in an effort to leave our troops in Syria, where they remain to this day, um, to go against his will. So despite, I mean, losing my wife was the you know, the worst experience of my life, um, but despite all the personal grief I was going through, I wanted to start speaking out because Trump was the first person I saw that was bringing the will of the American people and the ground truth that we had no business you know, in the Middle East in this capacity any longer. Um, he was the first one that attempted to do that, and seeing the deep state really turn on him, uh, I started speaking out, writing op-eds, you know, doing as much as I could to support him. was going to go back and work on a second Trump campaign, and then 2020 happened the way it did, and then seeing the way that big tech and the mainstream media and then all the other unelected bureaucrats, Labor uh, Department for Chamber of Commerce and, and all that, you know, really did the theft of the election. I, I knew that I had to do something. I, I didn't know what until Jamie Herbert Butler voted the way that she did. And then I was like, well, this is this is just like being uh, in the military. Like, you can, you can shirk from your duty or you can run towards the sound of the guns. And that's what I feel like I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. I read your, your op-ed, the one you published in September 2024, NBC News. And... Um, your op-ed really choked me up, I have to tell you, and I'd encourage every single person who's listening to go and, and find it online. I do have it in front of me, and I wanted to read a couple of um, paragraphs, uh, if you'll allow me. Absolutely. President Trump's actions have shown our troops more respect than any president in my lifetime. His use of decisive military force only when absolutely necessary, combined with his reluctance to use the military as the sole tool of foreign policy, is not only good and smart, but the sign of utmost respect for the lives of our troops. 
Former President Barack Obama may have offered eloquent rhetoric, but very little changed during his tenure from his predecessor, except that he also got us involved in the conflict in Syria. Previous president's support of endless wars has resulted in the loss of thousands of American lives and cost American taxpayers trillions of dollars, whereas President Trump's limited use of military force and swift action when needed marks a decisive change from that policy. And this president has avoided getting us into any new wars, something his recent predecessors seemingly could either not avoid or not resist. As both a veteran of our nation's wars and a gold star spouse, I find that platitudes of our respect for our nation's troops from leaders without a strategy to keep us from getting into pointless or unwinnable wars are the highest form of disrespect. Our troops and our nation deserve a president who has our best interests in mind not just meaningless platitudes about our service. This to me is um, something that very much resonated when I first read it and echoed a few elements of my, my letter to America, which I had published a couple of days uh, after your op-ed, uh, coincidentally. Uh, as I said, this, this moved me so much. And uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for your service because you know I love your country so much and uh, it has re repercussions for the rest of the world, you know, that America be a strong nation. And so I, I deeply value and respect the, the service men and women of your country. And I very much respect President Trump for his stance when it came to international policy as well, for the same reason as, as you. Yeah. You know, people wanted to paint this character of President Trump, and obviously some of it was just harsh media partisanship that, you know, it could be expected at that point that Trump didn't respect the troops. And so they wanted, you know, people people wanted to know if, like, Trump came to Dover and he was mean, you know, which couldn't be further from the truth. He, you know, on a personal level was incredibly gracious. And I, because of my background, I, I've seen um, leaders react differently to losing subordinates. You can tell the leaders that genuinely care, and you can tell the leaders that genuinely care that this happened on their watch and they're going to be over responsible and that really they care kind of about their career. Um, so I, I had a pretty good sense of of that difference by the time I met Trump. And, and in Trump's eyes, I, I really personally – and this is just my opinion I, – I saw that he genuinely cared. He did not like the fact that he was the commander-in-chief and he was putting people into harm's way and that he didn't see – the need for the continued loss. Uh, I, I personally, I felt it on a personal level. What I had seen on, on a policy execution level up to that point was, you know, pretty much what I wrote. Trump was decisively using military power when necessary. That's that's why he let us go in and crush the caliphate. That's why he killed Qasem Soleimani mm -hmm. uh, to deter the Iranians. Um, but he didn't get us in any more wars. As a matter of fact, all the places that we were stagnant in and just taking losses for no gain to the country, he was trying to get us out of. And to me, that's how you show the troops respect. Like, you can save me all the George Bush paintings and, and all the – you know, the, the Democrats rallying around this new woke military doctrine, you know, and saying that that's how you respect the troops. Like, I, I want to be – when I was in the military, I wanted to be properly supported but then properly employed. And part of that employment is don't leave us in places that are worthless just to let us bleed out. I mean, you, I think, unfortunately, pol political leaders can kind of get away with that nowadays because so few people actually serve in the military. There's not as much political repercussions for it as there used to be when we had a draft. So – for someone to actually put that on their shoulders and say, like, I don't want to, 
I don't want to send anyone off to their deaths um, if there's not a you know well-defined U.S. national security objective. That to me is how you honor and support the troops. And in, in my lifetime, President Trump's the only one that actually walked the walk. Yes, and your piece truly shares that human side of him that the media, the regime media, and all his detractors have tried to hide as much as possible and, you know, the character assassination that we know he's been subjected to and so terrific that you wrote this as a rebuttal of the lies that were being told about him, about him not caring about the troops. It was a great way to counter that narrative that they were bombarding us with. Yeah, I mean, I, I was really disgusted to see that because all all of the, the media, you know, talking heads, the regime media, they, they were just putting out the same old. It was almost as if some, you know, pool of Democrats got together and drew a cartoon character of Trump that he was calling them losers and suckers. And, and it was all based on second, third hand information. And, you know, I, I actually had a good deal of experience, too. I mean, not just that experience at Dover, but uh, President Trump and the first lady invited multiple times, uh, Gold Star families to the White House. And they could have made it into some, you know, public relations bonanza, but they didn't. It was, they would, they would literally just have us in the residential wing of the White House and, and talk with families. And, you know, I, he, he's an incredibly gracious person. And, and, you know, I felt very connected to him and his family on a, on a human level. And then something else, once he learned my background that I've been fighting these wars for the last 20 years, he asked me what I thought, which I thought was pretty incredible um, that he wanted to hear from the ground level. And then he, you know, kind of developed a relationship from there, and, and he took a very unconventional approach to national security. He really broke free from the, uh, what I think is the, I guess, the intellectual tyranny of the military-industrial complex and all the think tanks that surround it. Yes, that's something I see you talk a lot about or tweet a lot about, you know, the military-industrial complex, the globalist cabal. I don't know if you use the term cabal. That's the one that I use frequently, but this very murky group of technocrats and leaders behind the scenes who are trying to subvert America from within, who have infiltrated all realms of society, and we see it really in every single institution. And another thing I wanted to ask you about are your thoughts about this woke program in the military that is being shoved by the heads of the DOD, it must be incredibly upsetting for you to witness. Yeah, it's very frustrating. I mean, on, on a personal level, to see um, Secretary of Defense Austin, who I, I didn't personally know him, you know, I was way below him, but I worked for him in Iraq when he was commanding general. For him to come in day one and to say that we need to have this stand down to look for extremists really paints this picture that everywhere within the United States military, that there's these these racists that are anti-American um, lurking in every corner. It, it, it's just very, I mean, I laugh about it because it, it's so absurd. However, it, it's really insulting to everyone that's in the military and everyone that's served in the military. The military it, it is an incredibly integrated place. I mean, they, they do that to you day one. They, they break everybody down to their, to being, you know, all equally worthless, as they say in basic training. Um, and then you build yourselves up from, from there as a cohesive unit, you know, and, and there's lots of, um, different uh, procedures in place to weed out people that have extremist beliefs and and you know it's not a perfect system but it's a system that's worked really well it worked for general for general austin because he rose to the highest ranks you know and so for him to come in day one it's insulting but then to me it's also very telling i, 
I, I think critical race theory is you. It's obviously a Marxist doctrine that's um, mm-hmm. at odds with the U.S. Constitution and our very way of life here. It's, it's an attack on our, our Constitution, but it's also I think it's tactically used by the regime to do two things, and that's gain control, and another thing is it, it's to distract. So. The first thing, if you're going to take over a government, obviously the rigged election, but then after that, you need to get control of everybody who has power. And that's one of those institutions is the military, and the, and the executive branch directly controls the military. So you can use critical race theory really to go in and determine who's loyal and who's not. So I, I think Biden having Secretary of Defense Austin go in day one and say, hey, we're going to have this stand down to look for extremists that triggered a reaction from commanders that said from commanders below him that said okay i need to start um, making critical race theory my doctrine and i need to make it um something that i am really blatant and obvious about so that everyone knows that i'm loyal to the regime so that's what that's what we've seen that's why we've seen all these different uh subordinate commanders saying that hey our biggest priority right now is having an all-gay helicopter crew and all, all these things we laugh at as absurd it's it's these different commanders showing their loyalty and you see this in, in third world countries uh, all over the world i saw it all the time you know these loyalty tests and that's that's really what this how critical race theory is being used and then we're also seeing it being used to distract and push the regime's talking points i thought it was really telling when secretary or i'm sorry um chairman joint chief staff millie about two weeks ago when he was testifying you know, he was defending critical race theory and saying that he wants to understand white rage, and then he wants yes. to understand why white rage led to the assault on the Capitol building. He's echoing the whole January 6th conspiracy. So he's like double showing his loyalty to the regime, but then he's also saying, hey, we don't need to really worry about critical race theory in the military. We have to worry about these insurrectionists. It always goes back to the insurrectionists and the assault on the Capitol building on January 6th. And to me, there, we're hearing more and more of that from regime media because their narrative about the election is crumbling due to everything that's going on in Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, etc. And so that's that's the way that critical race theory is offensively being used. And, and yeah, it's, it's on a personal level, it's uh, really disturbing and insulting, but that it's to see this all play out is, is rather shocking. And that's why I think we just need more and more activism and action. This is the point I wanted to make. I can't imagine what it must feel like for people like you who've served, who've dedicated their lives to fight for the country, who've lost loved ones. and But even for me, just watching this unfold, and I've said it before, it took me at least five, six days to put my thoughts into writing back in mid-January because I was so upset regarding, you know, this whole fake insurrection narrative and the way that uh, the regime was so clearly parroting all these lies, all the talking heads, comparing patriots, in essence, to some of the worst scum that have ever walked the face of the earth, comparing, you know, patriots who have fought, who have died to go fight actual terrorists, to then be compared or equated to those same terrorists was was one of the most disturbing things and upsetting things I've I've seen. And the irony just, you know, in my weird spot in which I find myself, you know, for twenty years clearly stating my beliefs, you know, privately because I was I was uh, a, a private citizen until somewhat private until uh, last September, but clearly stating that I condemn any form of um, Islamic terrorism only for 20 years after the tragedy of 9-11 to be 
branded as a terrorist because I support the president of the United States and I support America and this criminalization of patriotism that is going on to bounce back on what you, what you said uh, a couple of minutes ago is so clearly a plot that is meant to identify, target and intimidate anyone who could potentially pose a threat to their rule and anyone who dares question the legitimacy of the of their regime and you mentioned it it's it's, it's worthy of a third world country what's going on it really is i mean uh, I, I saw a lot of parallels in the last year to, to things i saw in particular um, in iraq after the fall of, of saddam a lot of the stuff i saw um, on the streets of portland uh, up here with with antifa the way they mobilized i i found it very similar to the way that um Al-Qaeda in Iraq initially kind of snuck in and, and, and gained a foothold, and then now seeing the way that the regime is using these talking points, the way that they were able to get the, I guess, the gears of civil society behind them to steal the election, and the way that they're they're pushing this propaganda to brand anyone who disagrees with them, you know, patriots, the most ardent Trump supporter, or really even, you know, just skeptical people as terrorists and insurrectionists and seeing the way that the military industrial complex has been able to really morph from going on these long expeditions overseas and bringing all these different tools to bear on our counterinsurgency operations to see them immediately be able to be placed here in America, I, I find incredibly disturbing. I mean, I guess we should have known that was going to happen all along. There were some, I, I think, some more civil libertarian-minded people kind of on, on the on the left that warned about this that yes. I, I probably dismissed. But now we're really seeing it come to fruition, you know, especially with the way they've used, obviously, the January 6th narrative like we talked about, but then also COVID, you know, just yesterday, yes. you know, Biden, the regime's talking about, like, well, we're going to start going door to door. I'm like, this is the exact same thing that we were doing in massive counterinsurgency operations to get a good good sense of who's who and sort out, you know, what side you're on. And the COVID vaccine is, is the perfect tool for that. You know, if you take it, then you obviously adhere to the regime or you can be intimidated by the regime. If you're going to say no, then obviously you have questions about the regime or you're, you know, an outright insurrectionist. So I think we're living in very, very dangerous times, you know, to put it mildly. That's why I just think taking action within our system is absolutely critical. Absolutely. And you mentioned a few elements here, and there are three levels to what's going on. You know, COVID, the way that's been weaponized, the November 3rd election, what transpired on the night and the steal, and then the 1-6 fake insurrection. And all these three elements are being weaponized together in order to facilitate this hostile takeover of America. And as you say, it's critical that every single person, depending on their situation and their ability, push back. And whether it's using a platform or running for, for Congress on a purely America first basis, sharing information with, your, with people around you, standing up in your office, whatever can be done, we need to push back against the, this regime. The future of America depends on it. And I'm so encouraged to see patriots, you know, like yourself, like the parents who are standing up to the, the school boards who want to teach this garbage, this poison of um, critical race theory to children, this complete revisionist history and relating to everything we just talked about, this, this complete 
lie that Americans are racist, that there are that white supremacy is an issue, and I've and I've said it before. The only form of systemic racism that I'm seeing right now in America is targeted towards white people. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're definitely at that point where a lot of patriots are are stepping up. I mean, the critical race theory I think has been absolutely key to getting a lot of people. Um, kind of awakened to what's going on, especially in the schools and the vaccines as, as, as well. I mean, the critical race theory, like you said, is just completely, it's at odds with everything that, that is American. Yes. It's really targeting, um, it is targeting, it's trying to make white people as the, the ultimate evil behind all of our, our ills as a society. What I like to point out too, though, is that, you know, it's white people right now, but, but the second they're done or they, they feel that they have neutered white people enough, they're going to move on to the next group. I mean, take a look at the Asian people, you know, so I, I think that the big thing of critical race theory is they do like dividing people because the elites don't want the common um, working class person, the middle class person, the deplorables, essentially patriots, to really wake up and realize that they're all being screwed over and, and held back by the same elites, the same permanent ruling class. So it's certainly white people that are the target right now. And of course, you know, it won't. Um, it's easy to call me a racist as a white guy saying that, but my, my point is always like, yeah, it's white guys now, but once you get rid of all the white guys, like it doesn't stop. That's not the way this thing works. It's like allowing violence on your streets from Antifa. Like they don't just go away on a certain day. They actually have to be checked. And it, it's the same thing with, with CRT I, is, is my belief. Cause really at the end of it, it's, there's no, there's no racial harmony utopia. Uh, the, the event, the end goal for CRT is totally complete control of every faucet of your life. This is about rendering us completely submissive and subjugated in front of the elites. And America is the one country that stands in their way in order to install this worldwide global governance system whereby we will all be under this thumb of an international system and borders will just be lines on a map, nothing more. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what people need to realize that this is this is really the top elites of America, primarily that work in the in the technology field, but also other you know major corporations that have made an unholy alliance with the upper rungs of our government, and then really the Chinese Communist Party. But their eventual goal is really just to have a global order of of technocrats and, and oligarchs that that control us, and, and to them. We're just a bunch of workers that they can they can exploit because everything in the in the global empire has always been about you know quest for for cheap labor and total control and that's that's the path unfortunately the United States is is heading down right now unless we stop it but I'm I'm actually optimistic I think we are going to be able to stop it I, I think that the the left got greedy and, and overplayed their hands heavily in 2020. I completely agree with you I've said it before but I have full faith in the American people that you will prevail. And they, as you said, I feel a, or I sense rather, a big sense of desperation. And they, they never imagined that their plan would be disrupted by this left field win of President Trump in 2016. They never thought Hillary Clinton would lose, and they thought they could plot along with their agenda. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Trump shocked everybody when he won. And, and I think they, from that moment on, they went about this whole never again policy of we're never going to let someone who's not vetted and, and you know, adhere, and adheres to our vision for the future get through again. And then in 2020, they really overstepped. And now they're trying because they're desperate and they know the truth is coming out. They're desperate to get that full control.
Absolutely. No, it was a great blessing uh, that President Trump decided to sacrifice so much in order to, to run because while many people were aware of what was going on, I think it really we really needed that to spur us into action. And uh, he's, he's been a great inspiration. Uh, I like to say in a, in a military sense, President Trump was, was the breach. There was this massive impenetrable wall for outsiders. And you needed, you really needed someone like Trump who had the name recognition, who was independently wealthy, um, who quite, you know, quite frankly, he just didn't care, mm-hmm. you know, to go through that. He cared enough about the right things, but he didn't care what the establishment thought, just to go and just bash through that wall. And people can complain about the way he bashed through that wall, but he bashed through that wall. And now there's all kinds of people, you know, I, I, I consider myself one of them, that because that wall has been broken down, we can, we can break through as non-traditional uh, political candidates and, and really start to take your country back. I mean, I'm not an American, as you know, I'm a patriot at heart, but I thank you for for taking on that role. We need many more people like you, uh, Mr. Kent. Absolutely. It's, it's my honor. Is there anything else you'd uh, you'd like to talk about? Um, well, there's, so, there's, <laughs> there's always, always there's, yeah. there's always so much. But I, yeah, I look forward to you know any future conversations, and I appreciate this one. Um, I'm, despite all the all the, the dark stuff that's out there right now, I, I really do feel like at the at the grassroots of this country, especially in places like my district, that are not you know dominated by these urban hubs. There's a lot of hope. We're the majority of the country. We know the truth's on our side. So everyone just needs to, I think, keep their nose to the grindstone and just keep pressing any way that you can and, and realize that the truth's coming out, but we're going to have to work really hard for it. So if people want to support me, they can go to joekentforcongress.com. We're, we're running the grassroots movement, and uh, if they can help out, I'd really appreciate it. I would absolutely love to have you back on anytime. The shorter format of these calls invite for repeat guests, so I'd love to have you back on. Absolutely, yeah, anytime. Thanks so much. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.